Boy, that's uh, <clears throat> quite the introduction. Can I just bring you around with me and you can just do a couple introductions here? I have to take my jacket off. It's getting hot in here. It's probably just me. I, 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 get a, I do get a little, little nervous, a little twitchy uh, when I'm uh, outside my, my home base, you know. Uh, but we'll be, we'll be just fine. I just need a minute to, uh, to warm up, you know. These bearded, uh, the bearded trio this evening. It's great. It's like, I, I, I'd like to think that Caleb would never have started growing that thing if it weren't for me. I like to, I like to think that's my contribution to your, to your life, you know. He's a lot taller than me, but my beard's bigger. So. <laughs> well, as Caleb mentioned, if you would, uh, please turn with me in your Bibles. Just uh, turn the page depending on how big your Bible is, over to Romans 3. And that's where we will be this evening. Can you hear me okay? Am I loud enough for you? Okay. All right. I'm not used to, you know, this. Romans 3. I've uh, entitled this sermon, All Are Under Sin. And you might say, wow, I'm already depressed. That doesn't sound like a very attractive sermon title, Zach, but... uh, You'll, you'll get the picture as we work into it. And of course, there is good news, as always, in the Word of God. As an opening illustration, I want you to picture an observation room or a room that could be thought of in movies as the good cop, bad cop room. I've given this uh, illustration before. You may have even heard it, but it's very applicable to this text. And there's a, a one-way mirror, as there usually is in these observation rooms, and On one side, in one corner of this room, is a pile of carrots and kale and spinach and other things that most of you are going, that's disgusting. Why would you do that? And then on the other side of the room, in the other corner, there is a pile of rotting meat and flesh and ribeye steaks. And now some of your mouths are watering thinking about that. And if you place a vulture in this room, right in the center, you just place them in there and you let them go free and you stand on the other side of that observation window and watch, well, where is that vulture going to go? Does he care about the beta carotene and the vitamin K and all the micronutrients and all the stuff that is found in the vegetables? Well, no, of course not. He's going to go for that rotting meat. He wants that flesh. He desires that flesh. Well, why? Why is that? It's because of his nature, right? It's woven into him. It's his nature. But if you place a rabbit in that same room, place him right here in the middle, and what's he going to do? Where's he going to go? Well, I'm assuming this is not some mutant zombie rabbit from a horror film or something like that. Well, you, of course, you know where he's going to go. He's going to go towards those veggies, the carrots, the greens, the things that he eats. Why? Because of his nature. It is his nature. Well, what we're studying here in Romans 3 is one of the clearest passages in all of Scripture on our nature. The fact of our total inability, our total corruption and depravity from birth, as Caleb mentioned just a moment ago. 
And people will say all sorts of things when you ask them about the nature of man, though, right? They say, well, mankind has some evil tendencies, yes, but he is basically good. Or it is influences growing up which make a person do evil things, not necessarily his heart, right? And on and on the list goes. Or a person can choose to do good or evil. They can choose God over their sin if they just try hard enough or if they're just good enough. Beloved, that is not what Scripture teaches. That is not what the Bible tells us. Anyone who asserts any of the ideas that I just said does not have the clarity that is presented in Scripture on our nature. The Word of God and what it says about who we are. These ideas that man is basically good, all these things, they're rooted in secular humanism and various forms of paganism, believe it or not. Not the inspired Word of God, our Creator. You want to understand humanity? You want to understand the root of our problems? You go to the Bible, right? And so in this passage, I'll pull out three main things for you. Number one, we will see our hopeless depravity. And number two, we will see our hopeless excuses. And number three, don't let me lose you yet. There's good news. We will see our hope revealed. So if you found your place in Romans 3, we'll read together. I won't ask you to stand as you stood quite a, quite a bit this evening. Starting in verse 9, Romans 3, Paul writing says, What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all both Jews and Greeks are under sin, as it is written. None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped. And the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified or made righteous in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. But now, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. 
This is the word of God. Let's pray. Oh Lord God, I thank you for these men of God who have gathered to preach your word tonight. I thank you that your truth has been proclaimed and I thank you that we still have the freedom to do so. And Lord, I pray that even if that freedom is stripped from us, that we will still do so. God, embolden us. Please give us your wisdom tonight. Please reveal to us the truth that is in your word. That those who are here who are believers, that they would see the hopelessness of who they used to be and now who they are only because of you and your grace. And if there is one or more tonight here who do not know you, I pray that they would see the truth that is in your word that reveals who we really are and that our only hope is in Christ. Father, teach us. In Jesus' name, amen. Romans is often called Paul's magnum opus, his uh, full treatise on the gospel, a comprehensive dissertation on the gospel of Jesus Christ. You could consider it a, a systematic theology, if you will, on the gospel. In the first few chapters of Romans, what Paul does here is he lays down a God inspired judgment, an indictment. All of humanity is on trial here. And all humanity stands guilty of sin before a holy God. All are accountable, he says. In chapter 1, verse 16, that Caleb read just a moment ago, he starts off with a declaration that he is not ashamed of the gospel. He's not ashamed of it. Why? Because it is the power of God unto salvation. Quite literally, the Greek there, it just says, it is power of God to everyone who believes. For in it, that is the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, and the righteous shall live by faith. The righteous. So from the very beginning, you see Paul makes it clear that there is something we are all lacking. Caleb just said it so well, so plainly. You were born minus God, right? You know this. Paul makes it clear. There's something we're lacking, the righteousness of God. He is righteous, we are not. And the only way to be declared righteous, Scripture says, is through faith. The only way one will live, that is eternally, is by faith. Paul then starts his indictment in verse 18. The wrath of God. Of chapter 1. The wrath of God is revealed against all ungodliness. And in synopsis, men suppress the truth and unrighteousness. It says that God has made certain things about himself known in creation, right? So that everyone is without excuse. They do not honor him or give thanks. They are fools. They have debased minds and they have exchanged the creator for created things and for the lusts of their hearts. That's what Paul details. 
And Paul continues on and on. And in synopsis, he explains that the Gentiles without the law are guilty before God. And the Jews with the law are also guilty before God. The whole world is guilty before God. And in themselves, they have no capacity to remedy this situation. Nothing to make it better. No band-aid. You say, wow, I'm even more depressed. (laughs) But listen, in short, what Paul is making abundantly clear is this. You must understand your need. The depth of your depravity, the sinfulness of sin, the bad news. Before you can understand fully the good news. You see? Steve Lawson gives a phenomenal illustration where he speaks of going into a jewelry store. We've all been there. If they do they still exist anymore? I know malls barely exist anymore. Do jewelry stores exist? Anyway, you go into a jewelry store and especially as men, we're we're dazzled by what's going on. I have no idea which, which way is up, what's pretty, what's not. I, I don't know. I don't get it. And they're in these shiny glass cases and everything is beautiful and glimmering. The lights are bouncing off all of the facets of these diamonds and you may you may just be overwhelmed i don't know what's going on here they all look beautiful i guess but then sometimes the jeweler will take out one piece that you may be looking at and he'll slip behind it a nice black piece of velvet and you say wow put that black velvet behind there and the the radiance of this diamond the Shining facets, they look more glorious than they ever did before. And so you see what Lawson puts forth is that's how we need to understand the good news, too. It doesn't sound all that good. It doesn't make as much sense unless we have the black velvet of God's wrath behind the glory of his grace. We must understand the bad news. So the overall point, the only remedy that exists for our hopeless depravity and our useless excuses is the hope found in the only Savior, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Amen? Amen? I hope we're all in agreement on that tonight. So number one, we see our hopeless depravity. Our hopeless depravity. Verse nine, Paul says, what then? What then? Meaning, what does it mean? What is the outcome? Well, remember what he has been discussing, universal guilt before God, right? It started at verse 18 of chapter 1, and it goes all the way through verse 20 of chapter 3. And he says, are we any better off? Well, to whom does the we refer here? The Greek literally says, are we There's no really extra word there. There there may be a translational choice there as to whether or not to include the word Jews where it says, are we Jews? But it is really most likely just saying, are we any better off? Who is he referring to? Well, he's already addressed the Gentiles and he's already addressed the Jews. So the we here likely refers to Paul and his Christian audience. Those in Rome, the Christians in Rome, who will receive this letter. He's addressing believers. Basically, he is saying this. We are no better 
than those Jews and Gentiles who are under God's condemnation. We're no better than they are. We are not superior to them in any way. We were once just as they are. You were. Our nature is no better than their nature. From birth, we are all in the same predicament, which is what? Verse 9, under sin. This is our hopeless depravity, you see. In verses 10 through 18, Paul moves on and he proclaims his irrefutable indictment of the condemnation of all mankind. This is our nature, our natural state of sin from birth. And we see a similar condemnation and an explanation of our nature. I'm not going to read all of these, but in Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 3, that's my favorite passage in the whole Bible, verses 1 through 5. And again in Titus 3, 3, we were hated by others and hating one another, he says in Titus 3. And then in Colossians 3, verses 5 through 7, the pattern is always the same. In these immoral things, in your hatred for God, in these impurities, in this idolatry, you all once walked. All of you. But now, we're not there yet. <laughs> we're still in the bad news. But the pattern is always the same. Do you see this? It's all through Paul's writings. This is your nature, sin and immorality, the total corruption of your being, total spiritual deadness and inability. This is who you are from birth, ever since the fall of Adam. What's the best way to explain this? Well, by using scripture, of course, and which Paul proceeds. That's what he does. See, he uses scripture to argue and prove his point. He goes to the Old Testament to prove what he's talking about. Now, so as a note to you, when you're out in the world doing apologetics, proclaiming the gospel, doing whatever it is that Caleb just encouraged us to do so beautifully, trying to reason with people, do not attempt to do so apart from Scripture. It's what Paul does. Why wouldn't we do the same? It's what Jesus did as well. It is written. It is written. It is written over and over, right? And people may say, well, in conversation with the unbeliever, you can't really use Scripture because they don't believe Scripture is the Word of God. So you have to use philosophy. You have to use arguments from evidence and science and history and creation, etc. Nonsense. Now, those things can be helpful in conversation. Sure, we admit that. But those things are not the powerful, convicting, cutting word of God. You must use scripture. Why would you go to battle and sheath your sword? Use the scripture when you speak the truth in love to unbelievers. Use God's word as your standard of truth, it is more powerful than any reason you can ever offer. Amen? So we use that. I, I give that as a matter of application. MacArthur, he notes here that verses 10 through 17, that Paul does, what Paul does is he strings together a series of Old Testament quotations that do what? They indict the human race. They indict his character, verses 10 through 12. 
They indict his conversation, verses 13 through 14, and they indict his conduct, 15 through 17. This being, in short, what you are on the inside, what you say, and what you do. And so he strings together truths from several Psalms, a couple Proverbs, and Isaiah, which taken together prove the universal sinfulness and condemnation of all mankind. Paul uses scripture. So use scripture out in the world. So we'll, we'll address the character of men. I won't address all three of those. The character of men, verses 10 through 12. He's quoting from Psalm 14 and from Psalm 53. Those two Psalms are nearly identical. And I'll read a couple verses here for you. Psalm 14, verses 1 through 3. The fool says in his heart, what? There is no God. This is familiar to you. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, any who seek after God. But they have all turned aside. Together they have become, they are corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Sound familiar? Sounds a bit like the time of Noah as well, doesn't it? This is the character of mankind, right? It's not basically good with a little bit of bad sprinkled in, right? And likewise, he's not basically bad with a little bit of good sprinkled in either. It's neither or. This is not a a batch of cookies on the cookie sheet where your wife reveals to you, these are good cookies. (laughs) Honey. These are healthy cookies. I snuck a little kale in there for you. I snuck a little spinach in there. I used a healthy flour alternative or a healthy sugar alternative. They're not the best thing for you, but there's a little good sprinkled in there for you. And what do you say, husbands? Thank you, honey. Yes. (laughs) No, this is not the state of man. It is total corruption. No one is righteous. It could not be more clear, right? No one is righteous. No one does good. Nine times in this passage, Paul uses the words such as none and all to show the universality of sin and rebellion towards God. Verse 12, all have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one can reach God's standard of moral perfection and holiness. Be holy as your Father in heaven is holy. No one. Likewise, verse 11, he moves on and he says, No one understands. So not only are there none righteous, but no one even understands how to be righteous. They don't even comprehend it. Man is unable to comprehend or grasp God's standard of righteousness. They only understand how to be wicked by nature. This speaks of our inability, you see. Not just a lack of motivation. I need a little sugar and an energy drink to get motivated. It's an inability. You are unable to understand, unable to be righteous, unable 
to seek after God. Illustration. Caleb already brought it up. You would have think we compared notes, but we didn't. You don't have to teach a child how to sin, do you? Of course not. I have three boys. I'm well aware. <laughs> you don't have to teach them or motivate a child to sin. They come out a sinning. Yeah. It's true. They're born. David says in the Old Testament, spiritually dead, conceived in iniquity, born in sin. Or as Bodie Bauckham would say, that's a viper in a diaper. <laughs> They're so cute and so tiny so that you don't kill them and so that they can't kill you. It's true. No one understands. None are righteous. In verses 13 through 17, he gives several details. He discusses the conversation and the conduct of man, which displays what he already argued, what he already proved, our hopeless depravity. If we were righteous, we would seek for God, but we are not righteous. Therefore, we are unable to seek for God. The only time a sinner ever seeks for God in fact, is when God first seeks the sinner. John 6. No one, no man comes to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. You see, it is God who is the seeker of sinners and the Savior of sinners. Right. It is he who calls and draws that effectual calling that Caleb mentioned the idea that people are able to seek after God or to choose God over their sin is a humanistic idea. It's not a biblical one. Scripture is clear that we are born in total corruption, stained with the original sin of Adam. We are not just unwilling to seek after God or impacted by bad influences. But we are totally unable to seek after God. What can a dead man do? Ephesians 2 verses 1 through 3. That no one seeks for God by nature. They are dead. God must perform a resurrection. And he does so by the power of the gospel. And the preaching of the word. People may seek, yes, for the supposed benefits of God, right? But they're seeking a God in their own image, not to glorify the one true God. Our problem is not even some external source pressing in upon us, man making us unlikely to seek after God. Our problem is an internal problem of the heart. Romans 8, 7 through 8, for the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit itself to the law of God. Indeed, it is unable to do so. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Romans 8, 7 through 8. And yet again, in 1 Corinthians 2, verse 14, the natural man, that's all of us by nature, right? The natural man does not understand the things of God, for they are foolishness to him. 
So because we are not righteous and we do not understand, we are corrupt and we do all the things mentioned in verses 13 through 18. He lists several. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive, poison, venom. They're full of curses, bitterness. They shed blood, ruin, misery. No fear of God. And so next we move on to our hopeless excuses. We've covered our character, our depravity, our sinfulness. In verses 19 and 20, let's read that quickly. 19, now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped or shut up and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes knowledge of sin. You see, in these two verses... We see any excuses we have to offer are hopeless and futile nonsense. How do you make excuses to a thrice holy God? Amen. We can't do that. Firstly, our excuses are futile because the law stops our mouth, it says, verse 19. And secondly, our excuses of works will never make us justified or Righteous. So verse 19, our excuses are futile because the law stops our mouth and it makes us accountable. You see, a person, they might say, well, I didn't fully know, though, making excuses. No one told me it was wrong to hate someone or that it was wrong to murder or wrong to commit adultery, etc. Well, who are those under the law? This is every single unredeemed human being. Every single one of us. MacArthur comments here and he says, Jews received the written law through Moses, chapter 3, verse 2, and Gentiles have the works of the law written on their heart, chapter 2, verse 15, so that both groups are accountable to God. Both of them, everyone, is accountable to God. This is who is under the law. So any excuses we offer before a perfectly holy, righteous judge, they're futile. Our excuses and efforts to plead our case in ourselves and on our own merits, futile, hopeless. Paul is saying, guys, we all deserve this guilty verdict that God pronounces on the entire human race. Why? Because of our sin, because of our rebellion. What is the outcome, after all, of a sinner who stands before God apart from Christ with nothing to justify them? Their mouth is stopped, closed, silent. We would have nothing to say. What am I going to say before the perfect, holy, omnipotent, omniscient judge? Verse 20, our excuses are hopeless because our works will never justify us. Works of the law will never justify me. 
They will never make me righteous in his sight. Any works I have are but filthy rags, Isaiah 64, right? Why? Because no one can fulfill the law of God perfectly. No one can perfectly love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. No one does that. But there was one, wasn't there? There was one who fulfilled the law perfectly, fully, perfectly obeying in holiness and righteousness for every second of his life. Jesus Christ, the righteous. He was the one. But you and me, by works of the law, no human will be justified, declared righteous. Those two words, they share the same root in the Greek, justified, righteous. No one. By works of the law. So what is the law actually good for? What does it do? Well, verse 20 B, through it comes the knowledge of sin. You see, the law, it reveals your sin. It acts as a mirror, a constant reminder of how we incessantly and hopelessly fall short. And we all fall short. And Paul says the same thing in Galatians 3, verse 10 through 14. I just preached this recently. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. For the righteous shall live by faith. Does that sound familiar again? But the law is not of faith, he says. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. The law cannot justify you from the curse. You see, we are without excuse. The message of Galatians and Romans is the same. If you think for one moment that you can earn your way to heaven or that you can be good enough or that you're not bad enough or that somehow your own righteousness will be acceptable, Scripture unequivocally declares you are under a curse Who shall redeem us from this curse? Oh, who was the one? Who shall free us from the shackles of this depravity and redeem us from this hopelessness that I've been telling you about? Well, that leads us to our final point. Our hope revealed. Our hope revealed. Verse 12. But now... But now, I've said it many times, praise God for the buts in the Bible. B-U-T. But now. Ephesians 2, verse 4. But God. Now, the remedy for our righteousness problem, you see, back in verse 10, 
is found here in verse 21 and following. We will see a few things. Who gives this righteousness? Who needs this righteousness? And who receives it? Okay? Six times you see in this passage the word righteous, and five times you see the word justified. Again, these words are from the same root. This is a big theme of this whole chapter. You could even say a a big theme of the entire book of Romans. How is one to be made right with God? Well, Paul tells us, firstly, who gives this righteousness? Pay attention to this great contrast. But now, See, you may have been hopelessly depraved. You may have been dead in sins and trespasses. No righteousness of your own. No ability to save yourself or to understand or to seek for God. And hopelessly under the condemnation of the law. With nothing but your own works, which are filthy rags. But now. But now. Sproul comments here and he says, Because the law of Moses, seen as a demand, cannot save, God's righteousness that brings salvation comes apart from the law. Yet the gospel is not contrary to the law of Moses. The gospel was already proclaimed in both the law and the prophets. But now God's righteousness comes to historical realization through Christ and his work. It has been realized, manifested among us, he says. Verse 21, he mentions the law and the prophets. Jesus affirmed the same thing, in fact. After his resurrection, you remember this? On the road to Emmaus in Luke chapter 24, verse 27. And it says, And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he, Jesus, interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning what himself the law and the prophets they bear witness to all of this so jesus taught the same you see the remedy to our righteousness problem our hopelessness has now been paul says manifested apart from the law the remedy our hope has appeared and been made clear in jesus christ you see Next, who needs this righteousness? Who needs this hope? Well, verse 23, all, all have sinned. Everyone in the world needs this righteousness. They need this message, the gospel. Has everyone sinned and rebelled against God? Yes. Yes. I ask that again. Has everyone sinned against God? Yes. Yes. (laughs) Are you a human being? Of course. Verse 20 says, No human being will be justified by works of the law. But also, why do we need this righteousness? Why? Well, because we have sinned. We fall short of the glory. His glory. We fail the standard. Therefore, we are at enmity with him. We are estranged from him. Dead. And lastly, who receives this righteousness Well, he tells us here, all those who believe, for there is no distinction. Let me tell you something. Your societal status matters not. 
Your parents matter not. Your accomplishes, uh, accomplishments, your career, your upbringing, your ethnicity, Jew or Gentile, there is no distinction. All those who believe, no matter who you are or where you come from, there is but one God and one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. Amen. Verse 22, the righteousness you and I and every single other human being needs is found only by grace through faith alone in Jesus Christ. All of which Ephesians 2 says is our gifts of God, lest any man should boast, right? And so those who are justified, they have been justified, Paul says, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus and the righteous shall live by faith. You see this over and over again. Romans 1, verse 17, that we read earlier. Romans chapter 4, verse 22 through 25. In the Old Testament, Habakkuk 2, verse 4, the righteous shall live by faith. Galatians 3, 6, the righteous shall live by faith. All over Scripture. Paul proves over and over again, again, by using Scripture. Abraham as being an example that this has always been God's way of saving sinful, wretched humanity by grace through faith alone. Notice it does not say a redemption or a way to be justified. No, the only way to be justified is through the redemption, he says, the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Jesus, only in him alone. It's one way. Oh, that's offensive. It's one way. Our hope has been revealed, brothers and sisters. And praise God that it is a hope that is not earned or based on anything that we could ever do. Amen? It is a gift of God alone, a redemption in which he buys back his sheep by his own blood. Do you understand what he's done? Do you think about that? Do you understand the depths of his mercy and grace? This righteous and holy God who requires perfection, holiness, righteousness, who cannot have sin or any darkness in his presence, he has provided his own righteousness as a gift to be received by faith. Do you see? He would be perfectly just to condemn me and all of us to hell. He would be righteous to do that. He cannot let sin go unpunished. But verse 26 tells us he is both just and the justifier. You see, he didn't leave us with the impossibility of you must be righteous. He didn't leave us alone. We can never live up to that. Instead, he had ordained from the foundations of the world that we would not be left hopeless. Instead, the son condescended 
in humility, came to this earth, took on flesh, and he said, I will be righteous for you. I will fulfill the law for you. I will live it for you. I will die for you. And I will be raised for you. For your justification. My righteousness will become your righteousness. Do you understand what he's done? Do you see? And we deserved none of this. You see, the righteousness that God requires is provided by God himself. He gives it as a gift. He came, not obligated to save anyone. And he said, I lay my life down for my sheep and none of them will be snatched from my hand. Not one. Oh, praise God. So the ultimate question, as I close here, I know I've gone long, I'm sorry. The ultimate question which must be answered by every human being is this. Are you justified? Are you in Christ? Do you know him? Are you attempting to make it on your own, being religious, thinking you're not all that bad? Or have you come to the place of conviction, perhaps even in the preaching you heard this evening, where you finally understand your need for a Savior, the depth of your depravity? Have you ever come to the place of recognition, the recognition of your own hopeless depravity, devoid of all excuses, devoid of all hope? My friends, that hope will only ever be found In Christ Jesus, the righteous. That's where your hope must be. And the call of the gospel that Caleb already said is to repent and believe upon Christ. Trust in Christ alone. And his accomplishment on the cross for the forgiveness of your sin. Trust in this perfect Lamb of God. Who condescended He was born born of a virgin and he would live a perfect life. And then after condescending, you would find him ascending a hill with a cross on his back. He was mocked. He was ridiculed. He was spat on, blasphemed. And he said nothing laying down his life, dying the death that we deserve. He absorbed the wrath of God for all his sheep and he breathed his last and he said, it is finished. And on the third day he arose, victorious from the dead, proving that he was who he said he was, the Messiah, God in the flesh, And he accomplished redemption. Do you believe in this Christ?